Well, I believe you might know that better than uh, you may think you do. So, lovely to hear the singing, and I'm reminded um, that tomorrow is um, already the sixth anniversary since my father died, who as a young man was a militant atheist and uh, was led to the Lord by a young student in drama college uh, who orchestrated a protest against him playing the part of Jesus, so uh, blasphemous was he. But after he came to know the Lord, one of the things he used to say on the basis of Psalm 14, and those of you who know the Psalms know that Psalm 53 is the same, notice from the Psalm, the fool hath said, not in his head, but in his heart, there is no God. It's a matter of convenience, not of conviction. So that gives us hope as we reach out in uh, this context in which we live today. Well, our reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 16. We're continuing this evening Pastor Bob's um, sermon series on those with the name P. But of course, we nickname the man in view in the passage tonight, the Philippine jailer, because we don't know his name, but he comes under P because he lived and worked in Philippi. Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 40. Let us hear God's word. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So reads God's infallible 
an inerrant word. Our dear Heavenly Father, 245 years ago, through your providential intervention in the history of this world, and as part of your master plan to spread Christianity and your word throughout this world, something called the United States of America was born. Men who took horrendous risks, treason, dared to speak out against Britain and to fulfill your plan. And all throughout those 245 years, this country has sought to do that. Today, however, we look at this country and we are amazed at how far down we have gone. We know that uh, it is all within your plan. But Lord, we pray that tomorrow, today, we can celebrate this country and dedicate this country to you and to the furthering of your plan, especially now that Pastor Tim is going to be going to Myanmar. So Lord, we pray that you will give him strength. We pray that you'll give him strength not only for tonight, words to speak that will settle in our hearts, but also give him strength to go on to the mission field. Lord, be with this country and preserve it. We just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Elder Nate, and thank you also for Olivia and Ella with the song service this evening. I don't know how many of you have traveled in um, Northern Europe and have visited some of the war cemeteries from World War I and World War II. And it's been uh, a privilege to do that, both on my own and with Brenda. And in one of those cemeteries, my grandfather's brother is buried, who was killed in July uh, 1917. And it was rather a coincidence that we got to visit his grave in the century following his death. But if you go to those cemeteries, both the Allied cemeteries of World War I and World War II, but also the German cemeteries, you will sadly come across graves in which the occupants are not known by name. And in the Allied graves, you will find this common refrain, unknown to man, but known to God. And immediately you get the picture of what is being told, that they have precious remains six foot under, but they don't know the name of the individual who was killed. They couldn't make out the remains. And so all they can say is, unknown to man, but known to God. And such is the case with the Philippine jailer tonight. We don't know his name. We don't know who he was, but we know what he was. He became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in this passage, verses 25 through 34, the fruit of that belief. And it's as if we are being told here today that whether or not our names are remembered by history, most of us, it has to be said, will quickly be forgotten apart from by our families and communities. Nevertheless, the remains that we leave behind are precious and ought to be safeguarded. And so we enter the narrative here in Acts chapter 16 
during the great days of the expansion of the church in the first century, the Jerusalem Council has just been held in Acts chapter 15, whereby they have come to this wonderful decision, without which we wouldn't be here tonight, that Gentiles can come into the church on the same basis as Jews, namely by faith alone in Christ alone, and obviously by the grace of God alone. And although the council has ended with the sad dispute between Barnabas and Paul as to whether John Mark should come on the second missionary journey, God has overruled. Barnabas and John Mark have gone off to Cyprus, and Paul, now with Silas, go off on the second missionary journey. And so in the first half of chapter 16, we find three great happenings. The first, of course, is the great call. This is why I'm a great advocate, if you can save up the money, of going to some of the sites of biblical relevance, because it opens your mind to so much that is behind the text of Scripture. And so if you look at chapter 15, verse 40, through into chapter 16, verse 5, if this was a class, I would ask you, how many miles do you think Paul and Silas have traveled? And it's over a thousand miles in just a few verses. Uh, they have set off from Jerusalem where the council was held. If you look at the maps in the back of your Bible, they've traveled north through Syria and Cilicia. They've turned around the corner. They are going across the seismic country of Turkey, about a thousand miles. And the amazing thing about that journey is that they are keeping their eyes open to how the Holy Spirit is going to guide them in the ministry of this second missionary journey. And in these opening verses of chapter 16, we find that the Holy Spirit does something which to our minds might be somewhat odd. He shuts the doors so that Paul and Silas cannot minister in Asia. That door is shut. They cannot minister in Bithynia. That door is shut. And so the Holy Spirit, in a remarkable way, corrals these two servants of the Lord, having picked up Timothy in Derby and Lystra, and they come to this place of Troas. Now, it was only in 2012, standing on the shore in Troas, that it dawned upon me what that meant, that Paul and Silas, having traveled all the way across Turkey, literally come to the end of the road, and as Brenda and I did, stood on the beach, looking out of the water, saying, what now, Lord? It is equivalent to walking across America. We envision that they may have had some slow form of transport. And then coming to the Great Lake and saying, Lord, what's going on here? You stopped us from going to the Upper Peninsula. You stopped us from going down into the middle states of America, and here we are standing on the shore, and what are we going to do? And it's at that point, that very point, that they receive the Macedonian call to go over the water into northern Greece, what today we call Europe. 
we are reminded that God guides us both by opening doors and by shutting others. And by that twofold process, He corrals us to come to the place at which He wants us to be. So there's a great call. And then from verses 16 forward, there's a great testimony. You see, God quickly confirms His will for them to go into Europe, what is, strictly speaking, the western peninsula of Asia, and they go to the place of prayer in this cosmopolitan city of Philippi, and in this city, there is a lady called Lydia, and that remarkable testimony to the grace of God in the gospel, the Lord opens her heart, and she is converted. And so we find from verses 16 onwards, they keep going to the place of prayer. And then this slave girl who has a spirit of divination, literally a spirit of python, who brings to her owners, verse 16, much gain by fortune telling, latches onto them and tells the truth. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, Python was the symbol that was to defend or safeguard the cult of Delphi. And so it seems then that the devil is speaking through this girl. And by mixing truth with what is going to be error, he seeks to distract Paul and Silas from the ministry there in Philippi. You'd think that the Apostle Paul would think this is great free advertising, to latch on to it. This slave girl actually understands what we are here to be and what we are here to do. But no, not at all. He rejects the great testimony, and he does so because of the source. He does not want to give credence to the demonic, and he understands in his wisdom that any time the devil wants to come into alliance with the church, then the church is in trouble. So he rejects the slave girl's proclamation of what is true. And he does so also in a pastoral sense because this girl is a slave. She's a slave to her master, but more than that, she is a slave to the prompting of the devil. And so he wants her to come out from under his lordship with a small l, and to be freed. And we are reminded by that then that God does not need the devil's help to proclaim the gospel. In the mystery of God's providence, he has enlisted us with all our weakness, with all our frailty, to be co-workers with Jesus Christ in the spread of the gospel. But God does not intend, neither does God want the offer from the devil for an alliance to help the gospel get out there in Philippi. And so we come then, by way of introduction, to the great earthquake, verse 25. Well, what has happened? Well, verses 22 and 23, the crowd joined in attacking them. You see, the uh, expulsion of the demonic spirit by Paul has led to economic downturn there in Philippi. And so the crowd join in attacking Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had been afflicted with many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them 
safely. And so they arrive in the jail. And it's not quite the scene that we would expect. Because here, after a hard day, stripped, beaten, humiliated in Philippi, at midnight, they are praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Literally, they are praying hymns to God. It's a reminder of the words of the church father, Augustine, who says, those who sing pray twice. And it's a call to us to ensure that singing is a part of our testimony. Here are these two brothers, Paul and Silas. And it seems that as they are praying, combining prayer with singing, that they are not focusing upon petition, Lord, get us out of this hole, get us out of this city. Rather, they are singing praise to God because in the midst of the ministry, they have been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's notice, uh, notice, we notice here that they were singing hymns to God. These may have been new compilations by the church of the first century. But since psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are three different terms for the psalms, it seems that at midnight they were singing out psalms to God. It's a reminder, isn't it, that uh, if we were ever imprisoned, and I've been thinking about this lately, how much of Scripture would I actually remember? How many hymns would I actually remember? How many psalms would I actually remember? And would I have a heart to sing praise to God with such volume that the people around are actively listening, which is what the original means here. They are actually listening to the testimony of these two men as they have been beaten and humiliated in the city and now find themselves cast into prison, uncondemned, for what they should have the freedom to do. And then what happens? The great earthquake comes. The 19th century uh, pastor, Robert Murray McShane, has a sermon which says, Thanksgiving obtains the Holy Spirit. And we do not know all that went into this great earthquake coming. But what we do know is that it coincided with the singing of hymns or praise unto God. You cannot help but think that God, who sides with His people, sends this great earthquake in order not only that His servants will be released from prison, which seems they weren't asking for, but that this Philippian jailer will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we turn to this jailer then, we want to notice three things tonight. First of all, the jailer's fear. There was a comment on Facebook this week, a comment by the uh, most famous 20th century Protestant theologian, Karl Barth, reflecting on a Billy Graham crusade in Chicago, I believe in the 1950s. And he says, that's not the gospel. That's pistol shooting. The gospel begins with the love of God and the joy of God. We ask ourselves, well, who is true? Is it Billy Graham true when he speaks about the law of God and the fear of God? Or is Karl Barth true when he speaks about the love of God and the joy of God? Well, I think there's truth in both. And sometimes God uses this attribute of holiness and justice 
in order to speak to those who are far away from Him to wake them up. And sometimes when we encounter those who are brokenhearted on account of their sins, they don't need to know more about the fear of God. They need to know that God actually accepts sinners. I came to a man in North Wales a number of years ago, and I'd never come across it before. I've come across it many times since, but not before that. And I was explaining the gospel to him, and he says, you see, I'm just too bad. God can't forgive me. I'm beyond God. And could I persuade him that he was not beyond the love and the grace of God? No, I couldn't. And so we need to draw upon different attributes of God for different sorts of people. And here in the instance of the Philippian jailer, it is God himself who uses fear to bring this man to himself. And there's biblical warrant for that. If you go to Jude 23, Jude says, at least in the King James Version, some save through fear. Those who are flouting the law of God have no fear of God. Sometimes the best thing that can happen to such an individual is by the Spirit of God to have, as it were, a rocket placed under them. So that for the first time in their life, they come to this fear of God. This realization that God is so holy other than what I am. That God dwells in perfect holiness. He is stainless. He is just. That as is sometimes said, we are walking by nature over the pit of hell on rotting cloth. There are people who need to know that. And this man seems to have been such a one. And so we notice, first of all, verses 26 and 27, that his fear was needed. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke. You see, here are these other prisoners. It's midnight. They have been listening to Paul and Silas as they sing or pray these hymns to God. Not seemingly petitions, get me out of this hole, I'm with some wretched people. But that they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. But it seems that the jailer himself, whether he started off listening to these hymns, or whether he simply fall, fell asleep, it took the earthquake to wake him up. And that, I do believe, despite it being midnight, is a commentary on his spiritual condition because he is sleeping the sleep of death. And again, I want to appeal to you as I appeal to myself. When we think about the unbelievers around us, and as Elder Nate has just said, the deterioration of American society, not simply American society, how much we need to balance frontline prayer for people to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with maintenance prayer, our own concerns, that we might get to heaven safely. Because there are many people around us who are sleeping the sleep of death. And our minds go to Psalm 110 verse 3, a wonderful verse which we who are Calvinistic love. 
that God's people shall be made willing in the day of God's power. This is why we pray for those who will not pray for themselves, because they are sleeping the sleep of death. And I don't know about you, but I pray for relatives that it will not take a great earthquake to wake those from the sleep of death who are yet under condemnation despite having heard the gospel Sunday in, Sunday out for years. And just having seen my brother-in-law's relative suddenly taken away, what is our hope? What is our prayer? That in the shock, of a cardiac arrest, brain damage, ventilator, death in one week, that some of our loved ones will recognize that life doesn't always go on, that there is a reckoning to be had. And so this man, in the mercy and the grace of God, is woken up because he needs to be woken up. So his fear was needed, but then the second half of verse 27, his fear was narcissistic. What does he do with his fear? Well, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. You see, he sees the doors opened. His first thought is suicide. He goes to kill himself on the assumption that the prisoners have fled. And although he likely would have been killed by the authorities, for the prisoners having escaped despite the earthquake, you would have thought that's extenuating circumstances. His first idea is to get out his sword and to kill him. Now, why do I say his fear was narcissistic? Well, because of the haste with which he tries to kill himself. He doesn't even check on the prisoners. He's going to end his life on a whim. This isn't a cry for help, as if, He's saying, well, if I pretend to kill myself, somebody will come and take pity on me. No, he doesn't think anybody's in the prison. So he's going to kill himself. And we also see his narcissism from his heart. We learn later in the passage that he has a family in the house, probably in the compound of the prison. He doesn't even say, well, I need to kill myself because the Roman authorities are going to kill me anyway. So let me just go to my home, bid farewell to my folks, and then go off and kill myself. No, it's his immediate response. Now, I want to say to us that uh, we often say to people, don't we, oh, they're so narcissistic, so narcissistic. She or he is so narcissistic. But we don't realize, don't we, that all of us by nature are narcissistic. You know, the Mayo Clinic has brought out 13 characteristics of the narcissistic person. I was pretty, uh, pretty alarmed reading that list to think I'm capable of all of those. And then the Mayo Clinic says, we have no understanding of how a person becomes narcissistic. And I'm saying, does the scientific community have to jettison everything theological. Because when I look at this list of narcissistic traits, it all points back to original sin. It all points back to the fallen context in which we live. And so here are some of the most relevant ones to the Philippine jailer. We have an exaggerated sense of self-importance. 
we have a sense of entitlement and require constant excessive admiration. What am I going to do if the Romans no longer admire me because these prisoners have escaped? We are preoccupied with fantasies about success, power, brilliance, beauty, and the perfect mate. We believe we are superior and can only associate with equally special people. We are unable or unwilling to recognize the needs and feelings of others. This man thinks nothing about how his family is going to react, that he has killed himself without even checking that the prisoners have gone, the jailer's fear. But then secondly, verses 28 to 32, the jailer's friends. Now, obviously, Paul and Silas have just been thrown into the prison. They don't know this Philippian jailer. We don't know where he was when he woke up. They seem to be in the inner cell in the stocks. But what goes on here is what we call friendship evangelism. They don't know this man, but in the midst of their own troubles, they come alongside this man and they grant him the hope of the gospel. And so it is out of love for the man that Paul gives the Philippian jailer three directives. These are very instructive for us. The first directive, verses 28 to 29. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Some have wondered, especially those who are critical of the Scriptures, how Paul, if it's dark, could know that the Philippian jailer was there. But I imagine, because obviously the Philippian jailer says to go and get lights, that there's some shadows going on in the jail. But also, if the Philippian jailer really believes that there's nobody there and he's in this great panic, you can imagine that he's speaking to himself, he's trembling, as he later, see, uh, later says, and it's a bit like Harry Kerry. He's going to kill himself. He's not going to do that peacefully and say, oh, this is the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. He's going to be talking to himself. He's going to be weeping. He's going to be sobbing, sobbing. And so it seems quite obvious to me how Paul knows that the man is there and that he knows that he's going to kill himself. And so, we find that Paul, before even giving him the gospel, he says, this is my number one target. It's to stop this man killing himself, because if he kills himself, I cannot teach him the gospel. And so it is with some of our outreach today. Sometimes there are instances we come to, and we want to skip right to the punchline of the gospel. But if we haven't saved the person's life, we cannot give them the gospel. What does the saying say? They don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. And so Paul deems it his first priority to make sure he saves this man's life in order that he might get to the punchline of the gospel. It's the same for us. Same for us. That's why, while we believe that evangelism comes through the Word of God, there is also such a thing as pre-evangelism, 
which is our way of showing the love of Christ so that we might have an opportunity to share the Word of God. If people don't know that we care, they won't care about what we know. The first directive then, don't kill yourself. The second directive, verses 30 and 31, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This man is asking to be saved. I don't think by that that he means save my life physically, domestically, temporally. Paul and Silas have already done that. And so I think what's happening here is that the Philippine jailer has heard this slave girl day after day describing Paul and Silas as servants of the Most High God who teach the way of salvation. And then it may also be the fact that the Philippine jailer was awake when they began singing praise to God. And so the earthquake, the care of the Apostle Paul, comes now to break in upon his darkness and say, okay, if life is going to go on for me, then I need this salvation of which I have heard. Paul then says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Sometimes we talk about repentance as if it's a command and faith in Christ as if it's an option. But when Paul says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is also a command. It's a loving command, but it is a command all the same. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. Now notice what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that we are saved on account of our faith. This is what we hear in our day. So-and-so died. Well, were they religious? Well, they, they had faith. Well, that's not the issue. The issue is whether we have faith in the one who is the saving object and alone the saving object. Did he, did she have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, faith is very important, but it's only important insofar as it rests on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while faith does not save, no one is saved without faith in Christ. So what then is Paul saying? Well, Paul is saying that if this Philippian jailer, ready to kill himself, casts himself instead of on his sword, if he casts himself on the Lord Jesus Christ, then he will be saved. And then Paul adds, and your household. Paul is not saying that his household can be saved without faith, nor is he saying that they can be saved automatically. But what he is saying is the grace of God which is great enough to save the Philippian jailer, and as we shall see, establish a covenant household, is great enough to save also every member of his household who also believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask us this evening, I ask those of us who are baptized into the church here, but not yet communicant members, 
Do you understand that while you have a privilege each Lord's Day of hearing proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ, that is not an option. You are divinely commanded to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus. If you go out of this world and you tell God, the ruler of the whole universe, listen, I could quote all day long every proposition of the Apostles' Creed. God might say to you, I've got news for you, so can the devil. The question is this. Whether we take hold of the propositions which are found in Scripture and we say on account of those propositions, I then am going to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm going to do it because He is the only way of salvation and I'm going to do it because I am divinely commanded to rest upon Jesus Christ and no one else for my salvation. So let me say to you, if you're a covenant child here this morning, this evening, that you have a tremendous blessing of hearing this message of good news preached Sunday in, Sunday out. But it is a tremendous burden to hear this message and to do nothing with it. And so we come to the third directive, verse 32. The man is addressed by Paul and Silas. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Seems that members of the house have come down from the house that's in the compound to see where the Philippian jailer is. Paul and Silas take the opportunity to speak to them all. And while they have already directed the Philippian jailer to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, now it seems they are following up with a depiction of what the life of faith entails. For no sooner does this man believe than he starts living the life of a disciple. And this is how we tell that converts are genuine. Remember the Great Commission. Go and make, not converts, but disciples, teaching them all things that I have commanded. And so Paul and Silas, they invest in this man. They're not simply interested in saving his life physically. They want to capture his soul for Jesus Christ. And by the grace and the power of God, they were successful. And so we notice verses 33 and 34, the jailer's faith. This man's faith was no foxhole conversion. You know what we mean by that. And the bombs are falling and the bullets are flying. Oh, if you get me out of this... I will live for you. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Nor is it some easy believism. Well, I will believe on Jesus, but I'm not so sure whether I'll believe on Lord. Let me just think about that, Paul and Silas. I'm, I need to weigh it up. No, when a person believes upon Jesus, they believe that he is Lord of their lives. You cannot parcel out and say, well, I'm in a great bargaining position with God, so this is what I'm going to do. Lord, I will take Jesus because I need my ticket to heaven. I need my sins forgiven. But this thing about lordship, it's a bit grim. It's a bit costly. No, the evidence that this man is genuinely converted is that he believes as he's commanded to on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives evidence of the fact that he is genuinely in Christ. 
And we notice that from the three ironies which are found here. The first irony, verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Although we're not yet told that the Philippine jailers believed, yet his washing of the wounds of Paul and Silas was part of his confession of faith. He recognizes his complicity in the public beating, the stripping, the indignities whereby they've been cast into the prison as the servants of the Most High God. And so in consequence of his visible confession, he is baptized at once. He and his household. In other words, through his faith and through his repentance, a covenant household is established in line with the principle that Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 7, 14. That where there is one parent who is a genuine believer in Christ, the whole family is set apart as unto the glory of God. So how conflicted is the person professing that Christ has healed his or her wounds who has little concern that the wounds of others be healed. This is what the Philippian jailer teaches us. That if our wounds have been healed, it is automatic that we have an aspiration to see the wounds of others healed. That's the first irony. The second irony, he fed them, verse 34. Then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them. Now, notice what Paul has just done. He's told him the divine command to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus, and then he's broken down what faith in Christ means and what a life of discipleship looks like. He's fed him spiritually. And then the Philippine jailer takes him up to the house, Silas, and he sets this food before them. And he says, as you have fed me spiritually, I will feed you physically. We don't know when Paul and Silas had last eaten. It's been a long day. They're now in the middle of the night. We don't even know if the meal was kosher. This is a Gentile who's feeding them. Paul would not have been too concerned. 1 Corinthians 10, 24 to 25. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the ground of conscience. And so he just takes what he has received so as his conscience is not troubled. And so the one whom we call typically the great apostle receives the support of this youngest of saints. And so must we. Indeed, immediately they are converted. We are to encourage them to support the ministry of the word. And then there is the third irony, the second half, verse 34. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Here he is rejoicing. How did the passage begin? It began with the prisoners actively listening to Paul and Silas praying hymns to God. But where was the jailer? Well, he was asleep. Well, he's not asleep now. And so he joins in and he rejoices. And not only does he rejoice, but his household rejoices with him. Why do you think they rejoice? Well, they rejoice, first of all, because the man's life had been spared. 
They'd gone down into the prison, into the dark, and there Paul and Silas had stopped him killing himself. They rejoiced also because of the impact of the grace of God upon his life. We don't know anything about this Philippian jailer, but we can imagine that he might not have been the best husband. He might not have been the best father. Remember, he's just tried to kill himself without saying goodbye to his family. But now he brings Paul and Silas up into the house. He lays the food before them, and he rejoices and his entire household with him. But notice... Ultimately, why they are rejoicing? That he, not they, he had believed in God. You see, this is where we differ from our Baptist friends. They come to the household baptisms, and they say, well, you see, when all the household is baptized, it means every member of the household had believed upon the name of the Lord Jesus. But that's not what we find with Lydia. If you go back, it's a verse... 15, and neither is it what we find with the Philippine jailer. Rather, a covenantal household has been established because the Philippine jailer has believed upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is saved, but they are rejoicing with him because now what happens is that as a covenantal household, they get to hear the good news that he has believed, that he has believed in God. That is why we celebrate every time we have an infant baptism. As Pastor Bob says time and time again, we saw this morning Aldrich baptized. We weren't rejoicing that just as his parents have believed upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, so has he believed upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are rejoicing that a covenant family has been set up in which the gospel is modeled, in which the gospel is taught, the wider community in the church, in which Sunday school teachers and youth leaders invest in covenant children. And this is their main theme, believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not our main theme to say, don't worry, little Johnny, you're safe. No, our theme is this. You have been granted at the font tremendous privileges. But with those tremendous privileges come a tremendous responsibility, and it is that you heed the command to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way of salvation. So I want to leave you this evening with three questions, and I ask them to myself as well as to you. Have you, have I, ever asked ourselves, what must I do to be saved? It's a wonderful question, yet, strictly speaking, it's an erroneous question. Because everything that needs to be done for our salvation has already been done. And so when we say, what must I do to be saved, we put those words do in inverted commas because there's nothing meritorious I can do to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul gets this. He, he doesn't say, now, listen, I know you're new to these things, but you really need to get your theology right. But he gets his theology right, and he says, simply do this. Believe. There's no merit in faith. Faith is a gift of God. But believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Put forth your empty hands and receive what Jesus Christ has already done. 
upon the cross. And so if you have fallen into the error of presuming that you are on the way to heaven simply because you got baptized, I ask you this, to go home and to believe for yourself, not for your parents, for yourself, on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that I grew up in a Presbyterian family wherein I was taught from my youngest days, don't rely upon the faith of mum and dad. You have to believe for yourself. The second question is this, have you ever believed then on the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself? You were born into a covenant household in order to believe, not in order to sit back and say, I'm safe, but in order to believe. The third question, are we manifesting the signs of genuine conversion? Well, what are the signs? Well, three of them come from the Philippian jailer tonight. A concern to minister healing to others. A concern to support those who minister the word. And a concern to worship. A concern for outreach. We look at our own lives and say, oh, left to myself, I'm so broken. I'm so scarred. I am disfigured as I look back in my memory bank as to the sins that I've committed, the people I have negatively affected. I am broken, but in the cross of Jesus Christ, I'm healed. So if God can heal me, surely he can heal others too. That's what drives outreach. It's a consciousness of our own need and dependence upon the gospel. You know, as I reflect this week, my brother-in-law's brother's passing away so suddenly. I didn't have many conversations with him, and I look back, and I said, was there something more that I could have said? Did he see anything of Christ in me? Could I have ministered more healing to the gospel, into the man's life who was broken as I by nature am broken? Am I demonstrating the genuineness of conversion? Coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ in regard to my finances so that the ministry of the word is supported so that like the Philippian jailer, I have been fed by the apostle Paul so I'm going to lay this table for him. And have I the capacity through the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit indwelling me so that if I find myself in a rotten, dirty hole at midnight that I know what it is to sing praise unto God for the privilege 
of suffering for his sake. This word challenges me as I trust it challenges but also comforts you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and how instructive it is. And remembering that every soul is precious, we thank you for the salvation of the Philippian jailer, not only for his faith in Christ, but for his evident repentance too, and for the way in which you have blessed his remains, what he has left behind to the Christian church, that we would be living lives of discipleship. Father, thank you for this testimony that he has given and pray that when it comes to our turn to leave this scene, that we would leave many remains behind us of the fact that we are in Christ. May none of us leave this sphere outside of Christ. And may none of us leave this sphere with doubt upon the minds of our family members, friends, community, as to whether we were in Christ. But help us to leave behind a fulsome testimony that you not only save, you keep. You not only convert, but you make us fully-fledged disciples. And so this week we ask that you would glorify your name in the lives of your people, and we'll give you the praise, praying hymns unto you, even unto the far reaches of eternity to come. In the great name of Christ, we pray. Amen.